Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Brett Stevens. Brett is the Pulitzer Prize winning opinion columnist for the New York Times. Prior to joining the Times, he was the foreign affairs columnist and deputy editorial page editor at the Wall Street Journal. And he was also the youngest editor-in-chief ever at the Jerusalem Post, which is quite a resume. Brett, welcome to World of Das. It's good to see you, Warren. Great to see you as well. All right, let's dive in on Ukraine. What are some of the non-obvious takeaways of the Ukraine war? Well, it's no longer non-obvious, but the weakness of not just the Russian army, but the entire Russian state was probably the most surprising fact of 2022. Yeah. I mean, even those of us who understood that corruption was endemic throughout not just Russian economy, but also the Russian government, I think we're surprised by the weakness of the military in some ways, and in some ways not, it vindicates President Obama's assessment of Russia as basically a second or even a third-rate power. Second thing that was non-obvious at least a few months ago, now is much more clear, is the strength of Ukrainian nationalism, which again came about in some ways for a non-obvious reason, which is that Putin's seizure of the Donbass or parts of the Donbass and Crimea in 2014 actually consolidated Ukrainian nationalism. It broke off those areas of Ukraine. Yeah, those are the Russian-speaking areas. Well, much of Ukraine is Russian-speaking. But more Russian-leaning, let's say. More Russian-leaning, exactly. And so consolidated Ukrainian nationalism in a way that I think surprised many people who had observed Ukraine, as I had over many decades, and seen a quasi, not a failed state. I was always in support of Ukrainian independence but a failing state. Yeah. And prior to the Russians invading in 2014, you had a country which there was like an east-west divide of the country, kind of like some countries have a north-south divide. They had an east-west divide. I was a, when I was younger in 2004, I was an election observer in Ukraine. Right. And you remember that election with the poisoning and actually was the first of the color revolutions that you had there. And then it repeated itself nearly 10 years later with the Maidan events. Third aspect, again, I'm not sure this is as non-obvious as your readers would like or your listeners would like, but it took essentially 18 HIMARS systems to turn the course of the war. A little bit before the invasion of Ukraine, there was a huge brouhaha in the United States Marine Corps because the new commandant of the Marine Corps, a guy by the name of David Berger, decided he was going to get rid of all of the Marine Corps' tanks. And a lot of sort of old school Marines said, this is totally insane. What are you doing giving up on the Marines' heavy armor? But Berger, I think, intuited what became obvious in the first days of the war, that the age of the tank is rapidly moving behind us because we now live in an era. And that's because we have these very, very sophisticated missiles that can just come right on the top or come on the side and find the places where the armor doesn't protect it so well. In 1991, during the first Gulf War, people suddenly understood the power of Netrix-centric warfare. In 2022, we are coming to grips in this war with the notion of distributed lethality and also the ability of relatively inexpensive weapons to destroy the mainstays of what a serious army used to be 
up until now. So a little bit in the way that Pearl Harbor ended the era of the battleship, the war in Ukraine, I think, has ended the era of the tank. Interesting. And does that mean both from the U.S. perspective, we should see a lot less investments in tanks and then also all around the world, they're going to be investing a lot less in tanks in the future? Things are going to be smaller units or more mobile and stuff. Again, there's this term distributed lethality, which has made its way around military circles. I'm not sure how common it is outside of it, but it's the idea of being able to have to deconcentrate force, for example. So the idea of a $13 billion aircraft carrier, which has potentially great power, right, and great advantages and has been the weapon of choice of American presidents for the better part of the last 70 years, that this is a foolish way of investing resources because one missile can blow up one aircraft, one missile costing $50,000, one torpedo costing $100,000 can sink your $13 billion aircraft carrier. So how do you make sure that you get potent weapons in the hands of many people so that the loss of any of those weapons is not necessarily decisive, that they're hard to find, hard to kill? And also, you probably don't want all the people concentrated in a particular place either. An aircraft carrier, you have 5,000 people in one particular place, and it leads to a lot of damage as well. So then you need a lot of protection around it. Well, this brings us to another point coming back to the war in Ukraine. People have been talking about whether Vladimir Putin would use tactical nuclear weapons. Now, tactical nuclear weapons were actually first devised by the U.S. military. Now it's the Russians who have them in much greater numbers. We've essentially got rid of most of ours. But the idea of a tactical nuclear weapon was to have low-yield, relatively short-range nuclear weapons that could kill concentrations of Soviet armor moving across East Germany into West Germany. That makes no sense today when you have a 300 or so mile front line and no really great concentrations of Ukrainian armor. It may be that he might end up using them simply as a vehicle of terror against international opponents. But from a military tactical perspective, they make no sense whatsoever because you just don't have that concentration of force that you might have had the Warsaw Pact invaded NATO 50 years ago. What are some other takeaways from this war where we're going to see militaries, both the U.S. military, but I assume other militaries around the world and paramilitaries respond? What lessons are people taking from this and making changes from it? Well, the other big lesson that I've been thinking about, this is not original to me, is logistics is everything. Logistics is what wins wars. The ability to reliably move large quantities of materiel and put them where you need not just the weaponry, but the machinists and oil guys and the food guys, all of that is actually how you win wars. And NATO has been neglecting the logistics side of its capabilities for a very long time. So I think this is also going to make us rethink or recall the importance of that aspect of war fighting towards ultimate success. It's one of the most amazing things that at the end of the day, it looks like Ukraine is winning the logistical war despite all of the odds against it in the early days of the conflict. And you mentioned NATO. Will we see a greater emphasis on military planning, on military spending on behalf of some of these NATO countries? They're certainly talking about it, but will it actually happen? That's a great question, and I'm not sure it will. There's been a lot of focus on Olaf Scholz in Germany talking about this signal change in German defense policy. 
so far we're not really seeing it. Maybe it's going to happen that he's going to spend 100 billion euros on new equipment, given how degraded the state of Germany's military was. You know, they barely have any tanks. They barely have any functioning fighter planes. They barely have any functioning ships. Even $100 billion won't be a lot. It's not even clear how well the people have been trained either, too. And it's a nice problem to have, the problem of, if you've gone back 100 years and said, the biggest problem of our day is that Germans don't want to fight and don't know how to fight, you'd be like, <laughs> great, can't wait for that future. But you know, problems are always a little bit surprising. Getting NATO above those thresholds of the 2% of GDP for military spending are difficult in part because the European economies are really not in great shape. And they have, especially as interest rates start to rise, they're going to find it difficult to service new interest rates. They've become such welfare states that simply fielding competent military capability is going to be difficult for them. On the other hand, it's all always a matter of comparison. The state of Europe's military, even the state of the American military, is bad. State of Russian military is much worse. That's the good news there. Now, what grade would you give the foreign policy establishment over in the U.S. foreign policy establishment over the last 25 years? I don't know what the foreign policy establishment is. There's some sort of foreign policy consensus professionals, or you don't think there exists one. I think that's an illusion the closer you look at it. Was there a consensus between the foreign policy of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Second term Bush and first term Obama, it seems like there was an extreme consensus, don't you think, or no? Yeah, except then Obama's whole emphasis was essentially getting out. Bush's emphasis was on getting in. And they were both, one was a centrist Republican, the other essentially was a centrist Democrat. I see huge divisions between them. I think there's actually more commonality between second term Obama I was about to say first term Trump, but hopefully only term Trump. That's a different discussion. The Trumpist view of America first and Obama's view of nation building at home, which is, I think, a term that he picked up from my colleague Tom Friedman, are really very similar. They're sort of the liberal and the right wing nationalist sides of the same coin. It's about saying we want to do less overseas so we can do more at home. We want to let the rest of the world fend for itself because we have to mend the frayed edges of our own society. I don't want to call it isolationist because that's probably too extreme a term, but the impulse is essentially isolationist. The impulse is to say, we're America, we have our own problems, the world is going to have to solve its problems for itself without continuous American meddling. And the great challenge in American foreign policy has always been this. It's to find a middle road between what Henry Kissinger called the disastrous oscillations of U.S. foreign policy between isolationism and overcommitment, that term disastrous oscillations. And I think it's a very useful one. It seems like the American public has been trending more, quote unquote, isolationists over the last decade or so. I don't know if that's true or not. Up to a point, there's clearly more isolationism in the Republican Party. Even if you think of the 2016 election, candidate Clinton was much more isolationist than President Obama at the time, even though she had been the Secretary of State. She wanted to get out of, she wasn't interested in TPP. She wasn't interested in many, many other types of things that he was trying to push. So she was already further more isolationist than him. And just seems like it just progressively would move so in that direction. 
I would put my hand on the fire that if Hillary had been elected in 2016 with a robust majority in the Senate, she would have pushed for some version of TPP and said, ah, but we fixed this and that detail of TPP. And so now it's fine. I think her instincts are much more in the kind of broad internationalist wing of the Democratic Party, the party essentially of her husband and of Jack Kennedy and Harry Truman. That's where her heart, it seemed to me, that was how her heart beat. And also, Democrats have always had this powerfully humanitarian instinct in their foreign policy. And that would have, I think, asserted itself in a variety of ways. So now you have a more isolationist Republican Party of voices like J.D. Vance saying they don't really care about the outcome in Ukraine. On the other hand, I think you have a somewhat less isolationist party with the Democrats seeing Vice President Harris and Speaker Pelosi holding up the Ukrainian flag just a few days ago for Zelensky's speech was a powerful message of internationalism. Hearing President Biden say, essentially, we will do what it takes. We will spend any amount to make sure that Ukraine remains sovereign and free. In its way, was a kind of Kennedy-esque statement. And you can quarrel, as I do, with some of the particulars in which that we'd be providing the Ukrainians with better weapons that can help them win more quickly. But this is a much less isolationist president than even I had thought after his withdrawal from Afghanistan. And a lot of people have been saying that the U.S. doesn't have a coherent strategy on most major foreign policy issues. People have been saying this for maybe centuries. Is the lack of a strategy, it could be seen as a feature rather than a bug? Well, look, we're a democracy. So no one says we have the grand strategy for the next 50 years and every president from every party just says, right, we're going to do what Harry Truman said in the 1947 NSC document. And yet when you look at it retrospectively, you do see eras of powerful coherence that last for certain periods of time until they don't, until circumstances change or public moods change. So I grew up, I'm old enough to remember many of the great debates of the Cold War and the late stages of the Cold War. And there seemed like there were these intense differences. If you were there inhabiting that era, you would think, boy, the differences between a Jimmy Carter and a Ronald Reagan just seem vast, right? Night and day. Now you look at it with the perspective of 45 years or so, they weren't so vast. They both saw the Soviet Union as an enemy. Both of them signed arms control agreements with the Soviet Union. Both of them supported insurgent movements against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Reagan, again, with solidarity. There's much more coherence now. Carter started increasing the U.S. defense budget in a major way the last year of his presidency, anticipating the Reagan arms buildup. Look again at the post-Cold War era. A lot of coherence between George H.W. Bush and Clinton and George W. Bush, and even, as you pointed out, the first term of the Obama's first term. Then Obama's second term and Trump seemed to have a certain consonance in their America first, come home America themes. That is changing again. So it's not a bad thing that the United States doesn't have some fixed 50-year plan for what our strategy is going to be in life. And I think in politics and geopolitics, you find your way through the era with the kind of historical and ideological and geopolitical touchstones that you inherit. I want to get your thoughts on Afghanistan. We had this 20-year adventure there, which led to 
2,500 American deaths, 20,000 Americans wounded, countless deaths of innocent bystanders, over $2.3 trillion spent. In the end, we just, we lost. And in some ways, if this happened in any other country than the US, it probably would have led to a revolution, heads would have been rolling. And in the US, it was like a two-week news cycle. Why was that? And then in a strange way, is the Afghanistan debacle, does it just show how strong the US actually is, that we could actually lose this big and still be fine? I don't think we lost. We ceded the field and in a way that I thought was disgraceful because in the last few years of the so-called war, when I say so-called, I mean from an American perspective, but in the last five or so years, we had a minimal footprint in Afghanistan. Our losses there were much smaller than average losses to training accidents, for example. The United States is constantly losing soldiers in training accidents, many more than we were losing on an annual basis in the last several years in Afghanistan. But what we were providing the Afghans was some measure of deterrence against a Taliban takeover of the country for not a lot of money. Most of the expenditure was in the first few years of the war. Then we had this, what I thought could have been a long-term stable presence, which wouldn't have meant Afghanistan would be a great country, but it also wouldn't have meant the major population centers would not have fallen. Women would not be now being brutalized in public. The horrors of Taliban rule wouldn't be descending on us. We wouldn't have lost such a signature battle. And we wouldn't have given Putin and Xi Jinping an indication that we were a retreating power, which is what convinced Putin, in my view, that he could invade Ukraine and not face a heck of a lot of resistance from the United States. Turned out it was a bad calculation on his part, but he had very good reasons to think that given the humiliation in Afghanistan. So I view Afghanistan as an American, not just an Afghan tragedy, but an American tragedy that we invested so much in this country. We could have had a good enough outcome that wouldn't have led to defeat and humiliation, wouldn't have left the Afghan people in the position that they're in now. But maybe your point is in the long run well taken. Maybe it's like Elon Musk buying Twitter and losing billions of dollars, embarrassing himself with this giant investment. Maybe he's so wealthy that he can afford this level of screw up and still get away. Yeah. If you just look at how we fought World War II, it was like, we messed up, we messed up, we messed up. It's like we lost almost every single battle. We did terribly everywhere, but we won in the end. In some ways, we just had all these advantages. We were outplayed so many times in World War II, yet we still won the war. And just because we have some of these inherent advantages that maybe other countries don't have. Well, I would say the same thing about the Cold War. Look at all the great spy games of the Cold War. We keep losing these huge secrets to the Russians because there's a Phil Agee or... Alter James. Yeah. Korea was a draw... We were humiliated in Vietnam. The Soviets seemed to be winning everywhere in the 1970s. And then, oh, we won. Right, totally. Obviously, of course we won, because maybe we're such a gulliver in the world of Lilliputians, and there's so much that's fundamentally powerful about the United States, about our power to attract, about our ability to create, that we surmount these kinds of difficulties. I'm not sure... I'm persuaded by that logic because eventually these things do catch up. Yeah. The great powers and great powers do fall. And so I'm not predicting the end of American power, but you can only make so many mistakes in life. And then, you know, the corrosion ends up being a crippling defect. 
Now, one of the things you've been advocating for a bigger U.S. defense budget, our defense budget right now is $1.16 trillion, which is 5% of our $23 trillion GDP. That's all in, but yeah. All in, including the $300 billion veteran services that we have. And it's 20% of the total federal budget. Questionary budget. I think total federal budget, I believe, is 20%. And now, of course, we're servicing our national debt. It's going to start increasing because the interest rates are going up. Even if we want to do it, it might be difficult for people to make the trade-offs in the future. What's the argument for saying, okay, we got to spend more now on military? Well, number one, we are spending as a proportion of our gross domestic product about as little as we have in the last 50 years. I don't include the VA in my calculation. But you have to because there's a long-term tail that goes in. It's like General Electric has to include their pension. I get that. But even so, if you do that all in, we are spending less on defense today as a percentage of GDP than we were, say, during the Reagan years. The Reagan years were boom years, if my memory serves. 7% quarterly growth in 1984 if I recall correctly. So you can have robust defense spending, not at the expense of robust economic growth. Defense spending is just another kind of investment that the federal government makes into the economy. Notionally, there's not a lot of difference between spending a ton of money on jobs at Northrop Grumman or spending a lot of money on jobs at Caterpillar because you're building out your infrastructure system. It's essentially money being pumped from the taxpayer through the government into the economy. I just happen to think it's a very good investment because we have been spending on defense in a manner that is out of the framework of the post-Cold War era of 1990s and 2010s when we didn't think we had great power competition. And now we're living in an era of very serious great power competition. It's true that the Russians have been unmasked, that their military has been hobbled. I'm not confident that I'm prepared to make the same bet about the strength of the Chinese military. China has doubled the number of nuclear warheads, we think, in the last two years. They're going to be moving to nuclear parity with both the United States and Russia within the next 15 years. Those are just new geopolitical realities, which we weren't thinking about through most of our adult lives. We have to start thinking about them again. And I think the idea that it's unaffordable, when you look at these things in numerical terms, they seem huge. When you look at them in proportional as well as historical terms, they don't seem so huge. We were spending 50% of our national budget on defense when we were fighting World War II. One of the things that happens with a budget is you start to allocate it, sometimes in very, very big ways. You mentioned the big, crazy fighter planes that cost a billion dollars, the big aircraft and battleships that are out there that are vulnerable, maybe a lot of just extra bureaucracy that comes in. It's not clear to me that increasing the spending equals increasing the capability. There actually could be an inverse correlation at some point. Oh, that's a totally fair point. And the management of the Pentagon has been a shambles for decades, I think. I don't think the Pentagon has ever passed an audit. The layers of, of bureaucracy, the imbalance in the what's called the tooth-to-tail ratio is really problematic. And that requires management at the Pentagon. That's always a real problem, should never be discounted. It's also a problem when, in terms of the way in which we conceptualize the military equipment that we need. During World War II, one of the reasons the Allies won, 
many reasons. But one of the reasons is we invested heavily in large quantities of good enough equipment. So if you took the average American tank, I think the patent tank of the M48 of World War II, and compared it to a top-of-the-line German Tiger tank, German tanks were much, much better. But they were harder to produce. They often came in too many variants. The Germans just couldn't make enough of them. When you're able to outnumber your enemy, there's this saying, I think it's attributed to Stalin, quantity has a quality all of its own. Now, the United States has moved to the German model in that we're producing small numbers of very, very high-end equipment. Yep. An F-35, I know there are questions about its quality. I've spoken to a few people who've flown the aircraft. They say it's an incredible aircraft, amazing piece of equipment, but it's very expensive to fly. Every time you lose one, one just fell off the bow of a British aircraft carrier about a year ago or so. And that's $120 million just went straight off. And they're hard to maintain, to train for them. We're going to find solutions in lots and lots of good enough, often unmanned systems that can be produced in huge numbers and can, in aggregate, do the kinds of jobs that right now our fleet of essentially Lamborghinis and Ferraris are able to do. It's better to have a hundred regular cars, just a couple of really nice cars in your garage. Now, you've also been pretty critical of the UN in the past. Do you think it's possible to have a really good, productive international organization? No. Okay. For a couple reasons. Well, many reasons. First of all, the very concept of collective security is really problematic because it means that the people who are violating collective security are also part of the decision-making process. You're not going to get a UN Security Council resolution condemning the invasion of Ukraine because the Russians will veto it. And if they don't veto it, chances are the Chinese will veto it. So the idea of collective security is a very beautiful idea. It failed with the League of Nations. It has failed for the past 75 years, 77 years with the United Nations. The second reason is that uh, multilateral bureaucracies are always unwieldy and they're frequently extremely corrupt, especially when you have nodes of power distributed, lots yep. of obscure corners all over the world. So the number of corruption episodes that the UN has gone through is vast. People don't pay attention, but some of these things have just devastating consequences. I mean, UN peacekeepers unleashed a cholera epidemic on Haiti just because the UN decides to send some peacekeepers, I think they were Nepalese, to Haiti, and they set up camp upstream in a river, and then they foul the river, and you've got thousands of people dead. There are, I think, specialized agencies of the United Nations, which in theory could do a lot of good. Mix the World Food Program is a good example. Or maybe like the ones that assigned the airport codes. Right. And those are organizations that I think many of them preceded the United Nations and were incorporated into it. And those are perfectly sensible things to have, and they make the world better. They're very technical organizations. But when you get from the technical to the political, I think that's when you really run into problems. Your colleague, Ross Stalfa, he's argued that we're kind of in this age of decadence. What do you think about that? I agree. And then I check myself and ask, maybe it's because I'm just becoming old. You know? <laughs> no, I mean... You have to, I think, as you get older, ask yourself whether it's just you. Yeah. I'm just becoming a cranky old guy. In my day. <laughs> In my day, we never had disgusting lyrics like wet ass pussy. But my day was the day of Tipper Gore, who was policing lyrics. 
in the music that I love. I wrote an essay recently that's being published in a few weeks. It's called From My Dinner with Andre to That Dinner with Kanye. And I don't know if you remember this, but 40 years ago, Louis Mal did this film called My Dinner with Andre, which is Wallace Shawn. No, I don't know. Has dinner with Andre Gregory, both of them playing themselves at the Cafe Des Artistes in New York City. I don't know who either of these people are. Wallace Shawn, if you remember, is the bald villain in Princess Bride. Oh, okay. And Andre Gregory is a great theater director. Wallace Shawn's father, William Shawn, was the editor of The New Yorker for a gazillion years or maybe 30 years or something. At any rate, they're two sort of New York theater type intellectuals who go out for dinner. And Louis Malle, a great French director, films them having dinner. And they have this like really intense conversation about life and the meaning of it all for two hours. And that's it. Uh, Sounds great. That's the movie. And it was like a hit in the early 1980s because you had a culture that could make a movie like that popular. I don't think you could make My Dinner with Andre today. There's no sex. There's no real drama. There's no shocking personal secret that comes out. You have millions of people that listen to these random interviews on podcasts every day, and they watch them on YouTube every day. So maybe you're right, but I guess that's when you raise points like that. I'm like, maybe this is my cranky self (laughs) speaking. But how did we get from the fundamentally literate and words-based culture of my youth and definitely my parents' youth to the less literate, image-based culture of today. And is that decadence? And I would argue that it is. I would argue it is in a variety of ways. One is that words-based culture involves greater density of information. Even podcasts, if you actually read a podcast, podcasts can go on for an hour. The number of words spoken is not great, especially if they're not speaking very quickly. The written word, books, articles convey vast quantities of information in dense, small packets that are just more intelligence dense than images and spoken words. Secondly, you've seen, and this is measurable, a really profound degradation in terms of standards of literacy. I was reading a study, this is from, I think, 2015, that up until the 1970s, the United States had the best educational system in the world. My mother graduated from Beverly Hills High School in 1958. And I went back and I looked at her curriculum. And she was reading Austin, Dickens, Turgenev. She was reading what most PhD students, or at least students at very elite universities read, doing it as a matter of course in high school. Now, most 12th graders can't read beyond a 7th or 8th grade level. We are at the very bottom of the developed world in terms of our numeracy skills. There are lots of smart people who go to Berkeley, a handful of smart people who go to Stanford. That was a joke. I like it. Thank you. (laughs) Go Bears. We're now, in terms of our numeracy, we're graduating millions of people who are incapable of middle school math. That's measurable. That's decadence. How valuable are some of those? I spend... A gazillion years doing calculus in college and high school and college. God, I can't tell you how many hours I spent doing calculus. I haven't done any of it since college. I read all this Shakespeare in high school. I don't know. Was it really valuable? A hundred percent valuable because 
It's what a former headmaster of Groton called the shadow of lost knowledge. You know that the knowledge is out there. You can probably you probably use it, especially given that your world has been tech-based for so long. You probably use it a lot more than you realize. It provides qualities of discipline and an understanding of the importance of numbers, which I don't think you get if you can't you know, do more than arithmetic or basic algebra. And I think it's the same with literature. I think once you've read Shakespeare, you at least know what it is to speak the English language beautifully. Every once in a while, you have this incredible English teacher who can inspire you. And probably we've all had that person at some point in our life. But most teachers out there are just average, just trying to do a good job. They're not really that inspirational. They don't really make Shakespeare come alive. Most of my Shakespeare classes weren't that good. I didn't really like it that much. I wasn't that excited about it. You should have gone to the University of Chicago. (laughs) Then you would have had a truly good education. Yeah, I never took Shakespeare in college, so it's mostly just doing calculus. Let me push back at you, Oren. Do you really believe that reading Shakespeare, at least having an idea of basic calculus, understanding, taking as I did, honors chemistry and understanding just how the physical world functions. You think that ultimately makes no difference in terms of quality of your life? You did all of that and you've actually done pretty well. Maybe there's a connection. There may be. These things are always hard to say. It's always hard to say, well, should it be Shakespeare or should it be this other thing or should it be calculus or should it be statistics? Or You can have all these debates all around on this, but a lot of the, if you think of really the smartest people I met, most of what they've learned, they didn't learn in school. They got excited about something. And so school had some basic, you need to learn how to read need to learn how to add and subtract some numbers and stuff like that. But at some point, you follow some passion and that passion leads you down some rabbit hole. And you can learn through that. You learn statistics because you get excited about baseball or there's other ways to learn things. I think what school does, if it's a good school, is it points you to the doors that you should go through or that you might want to go through. And it provides you with a set of tools that you will later use, at least initially, at some point you might abandon those tools in favor of others, but it will keep you moving along a path. I think it does another thing, which is, this is actually a point that came up in a dialogue not long ago. There are two kinds of intelligence, which in some sense are connected, but they're distinct. One is an analytical type, which breaks things down into component parts. Another is a synthetic type or synthesizing type, I might say, that makes connections. Yep. And I think that what a good education can do is allow you to start making those connections because you at least understand what the map of knowledge looks like. And so you can see where how place X might relate to issue Y. And it's because you've had a good education at its best has constructed that mental map for you. And so you're able to synthesize seemingly disparate phenomena in ways that turn out to be intellectually productive and potentially original. You started this with really saying that you mentioned your mom graduating in the 50s or something like that, but she did go to Beverly Hills High School, which I imagine was a great high school even back then. 
Yes. She was the only poor kid at Beverly Hills High. Yeah. So I imagine her parents were also very much about her education. And so she had an education at home. And do you really think the average kid today has a worse education than they did in the 50s? Yeah, for sure. Really? And again, it's measurable. In the 1950s, most high schools in America, when you graduate from 12th grade, could read at a 12th grade level, maybe 11th grade level, maybe a 10th grade level, but you could read at a high school level. I looked at the data not long ago, so I may be getting this slightly wrong, but there are roughly 100 million Americans today who cannot read above a fifth grade level. And I think that's really problematic. Is it, could that really be true? I mean, everyone, people are interacting and you really think it's that high? really talk about the people who are over fifth grade, because I wouldn't expect necessarily the second graders to read at a fifth grade level. But No, no. Adults who haven't read, yeah. haven't finished a book in 20 years. There are lots of people. Like I know that. a lot of people who graduate from Harvard who haven't read a book in the last 50, 20 years. Well, I don't think at Harvard you're even required to read the book anymore. But uh, Yeah, it's true. This whole thing has become a slag fest of various universities. Or another thing you've been critical of is you've been somewhat critical of the environmentalist movement. How do you think they do themselves a disservice? Constantly. Paul Ehrlich was just in the news the other day. Paul Ehrlich was the guy who in the late 60s wrote this then famous book called The Population Bomb, predicting that population would so outstrip our food production. It's a Malthus prediction. This Malthusian view that eventually we'd have too many babies and not enough food leading to world starvation. Classic Malthusian prediction classically wrong. He then made a bet with a free market economist whose name, I'm having a senior moment, escapes me for a second, of this famous bet in which he claimed that a whole number of minerals would be less abundant in 10 years than they were at present. Wrong on all of them. But the weird thing about that bet, though, is that if you did the bet 10 years later, he would have won the bet. I'm not sure there's been a revise of the revise. Like Take peak oil, for instance. We've been hitting peak oil again and again since the term was devised, and we keep alighting on new discoveries. And of course, at some point you do reach peak oil, but it's a huge difference whether you reach it in five years, 50 years, or 500 years. Getting back to your question, Oren. So look, I grew up in Mexico City. Mexico City is a horrible environment. I could sense the pollution every time I walked out the door. Well, if you don't know Mexico City, think of Delhi or Beijing or these... Or even LA in the 80s. I didn't have clean drinking water until I came to live in the United States. I considered drinking water out of the tap to be a modern miracle Yep, because we just didn't have it available. I get in my bones that environmental stewardship is hugely important. And I recently went up to Greenland, wrote a big piece about seeing in a kind of visceral way the effects of climate change and changing my views about that. So I'm certainly not infallible, but a few points. The environmental movement has been wrong about too many things in a way that is damaging to their own interests. The overpopulation theories were one example. Another one was the fanatical opposition to nuclear energy going back for decades, when it's absolutely clear that if you really want to have a mix of resources or a mix of energy types that is both environmentally sustainable, but also reliable, 
nuclear has got to be much bigger part of that story. And people say, well, nuclear costs so much. And there are all these hazards. Well, part of the reason it costs so much is that we've become so terrified of nuclear power. So every nuclear reactor we build is a bespoke nuclear reactor. (laughs) The Navy has, I don't know, 100 or so nuclear reactors on submarines. They've been operating them safely since 1953, since the Nautilus first sailed and went under the North Pole. You can operate nuclear power extremely safely, extremely efficiently. It's energy dense. It provides you with reliable baseload capacity when your wind turbines aren't turning or your solar panels aren't producing energy. But again, the environmental movement went all in opposing nuclear energy. And it's only now that a few of them are saying, maybe that wasn't such a great idea. And I think now in terms of climate, the way in which climate activists have sold the climate issues, in my view, has been counterproductive to their own purposes. Number one, they keep saying it's a catastrophe. Well, no, not really. It's a serious problem that we probably should be addressing sooner rather than later. But by saying this is the apocalypse that we've been waiting for, they run the risk of becoming the boy who cries wolf. Yep. Of course, in the end, in that story, the wolf comes, but you don't want to be the boy who cries wolf. Secondly, a lot of their solutions have been bad solutions. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you had guys like Al Gore saying what we need is ethanol. Ethanol is terrible for the environment. Terrible, terrible, terrible. It's a deforestation. It's incredibly polluting. But we had all these environmentalists talking about biofuels for ages. So the environmental movement needs to have a conversation with itself. So sometimes the environment, like if you think of the big thing in the environment would be cheaper, cleaner energy, maybe taking out CO2 from the air. These are the big things that could actually move the needle. You know what could really move the needle? Everyone is driving around in Teslas, right? Or maybe no longer Teslas because Elon's not cool anymore. But you know what really moves the needle? Triple pane windows, because a house is going to be around for 100 years. And if you build energy efficient houses over time, the savings from those efficiencies are huge, are absolutely huge. You know what would move the needle if Arizona moved away from flood irrigation and moved to drip irrigation? An easy technological fix. The Israelis have been doing it for a long time. Why is 85% or something like that of Arizona's agriculture still flood irrigation? That's insane, right? So we're always looking for this giant fix that there are going to be thousands of wind turbines everywhere, and that's going to solve our problem, and we're all going to be driving Teslas or electric vehicles. If we all were to drive electric vehicles, we would need to be mining six times the amount of copper, lithium, all the other critical minerals we need, and that itself is dirty. So there are always trade-offs. And I don't hear from environmentalists really intense and smart discussions about what those trade-offs are and how you sustain them politically when people need to wake up in the winter and know that they're not going to be freezing cold. I feel like environmentalists are losing public opinion when trying to do some of these small things that probably don't have much of an effect, but make people very mad. The paper straw thing, people get so upset about it. And yeah, maybe it is slightly better for the environment. It's not even clear whether it is or not when you read about these things, but it makes people so upset that they kind of react against it. I feel like sometimes people, they're not doing what's in their best interest, not really in the end going to make the environment better because they're so adamant about being pure on everything 
that they lose the force from the trees. And it becomes a matter of personal behavior and personal virtue and as also virtue signaling, which I think... A lot of it is about virtual signaling, which we all want to do. It's important that we're humans. Speaking of virtue signaling, you've also been a big critic of cancel culture. Do you think we've reached peak cancel culture? Or do you think there's still a lot more cancellations in the future than there have been in the past? I think we peaked. I do, although who knows? I mean, at some point during the Stalinist terror, someone must have said, we've reached peak Stalin. (laughs) You know, he had other surprises in store. Let me take a step back. Cancel culture has a silent cousin or sibling, maybe, and that's coward culture. Mm -hmm. In any typical cancellation thing, like person X is deemed an enemy of the people. Yep. And there's all this pressure on Twitter and other forms of social media. You must cancel person X because she has said something that is morally untenable. Well, then someone has to fire her. And the person who fires her is usually the person who runs an institution who is saying, what's my cost benefit analysis here? Well, if I just get rid of odious person X, that solves my problem, gets me through the PR cycle, or I'm going to force person X to deliver some horrible self-abasing apology being written by all these apologies sound exactly the same. You feel like there's some consultancy that writes the apologies for for these people. And then I'm going to get through it and I'll be fine. But then it turns out they realize like, no, no, that's not the end of the problem. That's the beginning of the problem. And I think a lot of institutions that have engaged in high profile cancellations realize that it's a losing game because the critics who are calling for cancellation are often operating in bad faith. They're not appeasable. They're really just in it for blood sport. There's a very, very good analogy to the Red Scare. Yeah, that's exactly it. And of course, that's when the left was strong in defense of free speech. Yep. I don't want to minimize, by the way, there is absolutely cancel culture on the right. When I think of yeah, both sides speeches I've had canceled on account of my views, I've been canceled on the right also because of my anti-Trump views. So it's a, I don't want to say this is a purely left-wing phenomenon at all, but in the cultural world, it is more left-wing because I think the left dominates more of the culture. But you see that people are kind of fighting back or discovering that, hey, I can be canceled by institution X, and I'm going to thrive in institution Y, or I'm going to do my own thing. Yep. I think the best example of that is my pal, Barry Weiss, who is killing it with her own initiatives. She wasn't exactly canceled, but she left an institution where she didn't feel very happy, famously. And she started her own thing, thanks to Substack, thanks to a new technology that basically said, if you're a really talented journalist, you're not going to have to depend on all of the infrastructure and architecture that a mainstream organization can provide you. You can do something interesting on your own. So the pace of technology, I think, ultimately is going to outstrip the pace of established institute or the ability of established institutions to determine who gets to play and who doesn't. I think it's going to happen, by the way, in all kinds of other institutions, too. We've got, in my view, a desiccant, morbid, brain-dead universe of higher education. It's ripe for reinvention. A lot of it is going to come with parents saying, I'm not going to spend $300,000 so that my daughter can have an education in whatever it is, gender ideology, from a not-quite-first-tier university that's going to provide her with an increasingly intellectually debased and 
valueless degree. There is a sense that for some people, they feel like they, and none of us can truly say what we think out loud. We all have some constraints, but it does seem like a lot of times people are saying things that they truly don't believe, uh, but they're saying them kind of like in Soviet times where you had to say something, even though you knew it wasn't true. It does seem like it's both on the right and the left. It seems like a very, very common thing today. Totally. There's a term of art for it. I think there's a guy, Duke, who came up with this called preference falsification. Correct. Yeah. And you see it all the time. You see it all, all the time. People mouthing pieties, which they clearly do not believe because they think that's what you have to say. And then you know it because of what Katie Royfe once called the whisper networks. She wrote about this in connection with Me Too, but there are all kinds of whisper networks of people saying, don't quote me on this, or I can't put this on a text, but here's what I think. And of course, it's impossible to quantify because the very fact that people are suppressing their opinions means they're operating in an environment of fear where they don't feel free to say what they think. But I think you have surely had this experience. I've had it. Everyone I know has had it where people merely saying things that 20 years ago would have been uncontroversial are now things like, I can't tell this to you in a text, what I think. And then when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, I can see why you'd be afraid to have that in a text, because if someone screenshotted that text, it could look really bad taken out of context. Is the only way for us to get through it is just to assume more positive intent from the other people, and that it doesn't seem like we're moving in that direction as a society. I don't think you should assume positive intent, in part because if I'm speaking to a room of 100 people, yeah, I give speeches all over the country. And on principle, I almost never write speeches in advance, because I think that it's tedious for the audience to sit in front of a person who's reading from a text. Yep. I always speak extemporaneously, and I always do so in the knowledge that if I say something off the top of my head that lands slightly wrong with one person in that audience, even if the other 99 are like, oh, okay, one person in that audience has the power of a tweet that can make me look horrible or foolish or stupid. So the risk calculation is not a good one. And in fact, I sometimes wonder why I still even bother. Whenever a PR person tell me when I'm like speaking on a panel or speaking in front of an audience, they always say, try to sound smart, but don't try to be interesting. Right. Interesting is what kills you. Well, that's exactly it. And on the other hand, that advice is the enemy of thought. Correct. Because ultimately, our most interesting thoughts are reached when we're pushing a certain kind of boundary and moving into- oh, we're playing with ideas. We're playing with an idea and we're moving into slightly unknown territory. By the way, I think it's very similar with comedy, which is why the war on comedy is so terrifying. Let's take Dave Chappelle, for instance. He said some things that I should be insulted by, right? Because they're insulting to Jews. His line in his last Netflix theory about space Jews, right? A lot of my Jewish friends were like, oh, this is a horrible thing, space Jews. And I said, listen, Number one, if I'm going to laugh at him insulting other groups, I'm going to have to laugh at him insulting my own group. That should be a rule. If you find it funny when Dave Chappelle is making fun of category X, then you should find it funny when he's making fun of your category. But the second thing is that Chappelle could not be funny. Chappelle could not 
how should I say this, could not be the master of his art. I guess I can't use the word master anymore. Could not be the, the genius of his art unless he was constantly walking way to the very edge of the metaphorical Grand Canyon and leaning way over and seeing how far he can lean over without actually falling into the abyss. That's what great comedy requires. And I actually think that's true in a whole number of fields. you got to be able to know that you can lean way over and that it'll be okay. And one of the things that I think has happened in my profession, for sure, is that a lot of us who are in the business of trying to advance ideas feel like, oh, is that really what I want to say? Because if it's taken the wrong way, it could be devastating to me. I'll give you an example of this. I'm probably getting myself into trouble just talking about this. I wrote a column a few years ago, maybe four years ago, about Woody Allen, because I think that the presumption of Woody Allen's guilt is wrong. It's immoral. It's contrary to a great deal of contemporaneous evidence from the time that he was alleged to have done some things. It confuses different things like people's feelings about his marriage to Sunni Previn with the allegations that Mia Farrow made, made against him, so forth and so on. But I had a line in my column. I said something to the effect that, that again, this is risky for me to even say this because I'm trying to recall a column from four and a half years ago. I am operating on the good faith of whoever's listening to this podcast. Everyone here assumes positive intent. Yes. So I basically made the point that people who prey on children, sexual predators who prey on young children, do so compulsively and repeatedly. The case against Woody Allen is that he's a child molester who assaulted one child, uh, his own. And the point I was simply making is this is like way outside of the profile of child molesters. The doctor who was molesting a gymnast, that repulsive character, molested scores or hundreds of young women. That is the pattern with child molestation. It's compulsive behavior that happens again and again. So my point was simply to say, it seems unlikely, if this is in fact the case, that this would have been the one allegation against Woody Allen in, in this respect. So I wrote this thinking that that was the point I was making. The way it was read in bad faith on social media was, I think that it's okay if you molest a child only once. Of course, I don't think it's okay if you molest a child only once. But the bad faith reading became the dominant reading because of the power of social media and because of the power that one person operating in bad faith has over the other 99 operating in good faith. Interesting. It's not necessarily clear when somebody says something in bad faith that they believe it. So sometimes people are just, they're in the gotcha world. They're trying <coughs> to gotcha the other person in some sort of way, or they're trying to just increase their own profile. It's not like they want to take you down. They want to just pull themselves up. And by saying some bad things about you, that makes their brand go up a bit. And so it's not personal against you, probably, right? Actually, that's one of the things that took me a long time to figure out, which is I used to take things much more personally. I mean, I'm human A and B, probably more thin skinned than most humans. But when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I wasn't like a famous person or a well-known person, unless you read the Wall Street Journal, for which you have to pony up for a subscription. And then when I got to the Times, I was much more well-known. And what took me several years to realize is that the Brett Stevens that is being railed against on social media is like an apparition. It's a hologram 
of Brett Stevens. It's not actually me, but right. associating myself, my ego, my feelings, my sensitivities from that hologram that's being attacked on social media is not an intuitive process by any means. It took me a long time to figure out, even if I knew it at one level, like, oh, you're a public figure. And by virtue of being a public figure, you just have to pretend that there's this other character called Brett Stevens, who's receiving all kinds of abuse. And it has nothing to do with me. But of course, it does have something to do with me. So <laughs> that's the same name, at least. <laughs> to separate those things. And I wish there's a new columnist coming to the New York Times. I think my advice will be take some kind of program to figure out that the new you, this is David French I'm referring to, is not necessarily the old you, that there's this yeah. other character now who's a actor on the stage of the new York Times. <laughs> All right, this has been great. Last question we ask all of our guests. What conventional wisdom or advice is generally bad advice? Be yourself. Be yourself. Okay. Why is it bad advice? It's simply meaningless advice. What does it mean? <laughs> well, which version of yourself? Right? <laughs> we each inhabit various versions. We have good days and bad days. You know, be your best self, maybe, but be yourself is terrible advice. Another one that comes to mind, a colleague of mine, Pamela Paul, had a wonderful column about this. She mentioned this line, bring your whole self to work. Don't bring your whole self to work. <laughs> bring your game face to work. Look smart and try to be your best. <laughs> Don't bring your whole self. Too much information. All right. This has been awesome. Thank you, Brett Stevens, for joining us at World of Das. I follow your call in New York Times. I encourage your listeners to read your work there, comment there. But thank you again. This has been awesome. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.